Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. The book of Romans opens its argument with the idea that we are under sin, both guilty and therefore condemned by sin, but also underneath the power of sin. And then at the end of chapter 3 through all of chapter 5, we're really dealing with the guilt of sin, the legal assessment before God, the condemnation that we have, and and the righteous wrath and judgment of God that is held for us. And it's answered by justification. The work, the act of God through Jesus that pardons us of our sins and accepts us as righteous on behalf of His obedience. An act and grace of God that's received through faith alone, not by works of the law, not by performance. And therefore you, through faith, today, right now, and forever, you are righteous with God. That's true. But another question you want to ask is, yeah, but what about my experience? Uh, Martin Luther had a Latin phrase for it. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, justified, righteous, and a sinner. My experience is sin. Is there a way for me to change? And Romans 6 through 8 says, Yes. Yes, there is. There is sanctification, the process by which God puts our sin to death and renews us more and more into the image of Christ. But it isn't simple. It isn't just sheer effort. Go work hard. Sanctification comes through trusting in God the same way justification comes. It's sanctification through faith. That's what I hope that we'll see. As we begin looking at Romans 6, let's pray together for God to bless His church through His Word. Our Father in Heaven, we come to Your Word knowing that we need Your words to nourish us. Jesus said He didn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. And so if bread and food nourishes our body, Your Word is the nourishment for our souls. Help us to understand it. Send us Your Spirit to guide us through these, uh, this passage. Help us to believe what it says and to be changed because of it. We, we pray that You would give us confidence in our Savior that leads us to faith and repentance by the work of Your Spirit, that You would grow and strengthen and build Your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 6, verse 1. This is God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died still uh, to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we know, or we believe, that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Do not, not to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's Word. It is completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. Chuck Klosterman is a journalist and essayist and he writes a lot of sort of cultural analysis type of, of articles. And in one of his books, uh, he uh, sort of considers how uh, society works and functions and he has a, a list of questions uh, that I have with friends called the Klosterman Questions. They're designed to get you off guard. They're all just a little bizarre. So they can disarm you from your normal thoughts. And, and the goal is to say not just how you would respond to the question, but the process by which you do it. They sort of explore your thinking and your heart and who you are as a person. I want to give you one of them. Here's the question. I need some setup. I want you to imagine someone designs or develops or discovers a portal into which you can look into the future. And anyone who looks into the portal will see 30 seconds of their life 20 years from now. And so you come to the portal and you look into it and you see 20 years down the road and there you are in a room by yourself. On television, what you're watching is a football game from the Canadian Football League, CFL. In the room that you're in is covered wall to wall with CFL, Canadian Football League memorabilia, posters and footballs and tickets from games and just everything you could think of associated players and those, you know, fat heads that stick to the wall, the whole room. And you're wearing a CFL jersey. And you're muttering alone, under your breath, about historical moments in the CFL. It becomes clear to you that what you're seeing is that 20 years from now, you will be obsessed with Canadian football. Okay? This vision is always correct. It can't be changed. It's going to happen. You know this to be true about your life. Now, my guess is most of you are like, I can't imagine it. I don't care about football or I don't care about Canadian football. Either way, that's great. That's perfect. can't imagine this happening, but it can't be changed. All right, now, that's the setup. The next day, you're in your living room, you're flipping through channels on the TV, and you come across a preseason game between Toronto Argonauts and the Saskatchewan Riders. It's preseason. It's meaningless. It's Canadian football. Would you watch it? And you ponder that thought. There could be a number of reactions. No, I'm not interested in Canadian football now. I wouldn't watch it. I'm really curious about why I'm going to like this. 20 years from now, I'll watch a few minutes. You could say, I don't like football, so I'm going to resist that vision with everything I have right now. Or you could say, well, it's my destiny. I might as well give in to it. You know, how it affects you is very interesting. It's, here, here's part of the question that intrigues me. What would you do if your actions today didn't make any difference? 
here's what Paul has done for you in the book of Romans as I connect the question to this passage. Paul has given you a portal in which you can look to an unchangeable future. It's absolutely secure and it can't be changed. And what you see is the judgment day. And you see yourself for 30 minutes standing in front of God facing judgment and everything he says is well done. Everything he says is enter into your rest and have your reward. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You are acquitted. You are not guilty. You are accepted and you are received. You see that eternal, unchangeable future because you are justified. And it doesn't have anything to do with your actions. It was all in what Christ did. So you might say, well, then my actions don't matter. And if they don't matter, what am I going to do today? Paul says, if you have heard justification correctly, here's the question you're going to ask next. If I'm really justified, if I'm really righteous before God based on what Jesus did and not what I do, why shouldn't I just keep on sinning? Why shouldn't I just keep on sinning that grace can abound? Why not just say it doesn't matter what I do and be careless and, and, and uh, reckless with my sinning? That's the question Paul expects you to ask. If you've been hearing justification right, I hope that some of you have been saying, I'm a little nervous about this. It makes it sound like we can do anything and, and, and that the law and the commands don't matter. I hope you've been thinking that. Because Paul has an answer. An answer to your question. Here's his first part. Actually, I'll just tell you the whole thing. He says, when you ask that question, should I just keep on sinning? His first answer is, you don't want to keep on sinning. His second part is, you don't have to keep on sinning. And his third part is, so don't keep on sinning. So let's look at that. You don't want to keep on sinning. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is, by no means. How? How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can you do that? Is his question. Now, let me try to phrase that in a way that would make a little more sense for us. Because a lot of us are asking, well, I've got a few ways I can keep on doing it. Imagine you've got a good friend, a girl, and she's in a relationship with an abusive man. He's physically abusive, he's verbally abusive, and you have been pleading with her, because she's your friend, to get out of that relationship, to let it go for her own safety. You know she needs to leave. And in fact, you've seen her leave a couple of times to try to get out and get away but she just keeps going back. And what do you say to her? How can you keep going back to that guy? That, that's what Paul says. How can you keep going back to this abusive sin? The language that he uses is dominion and reigning. It's like sin was king, but something's happened. You're dead to it, and so you can get free. So don't go back. Let me help you see why he would say that. Sin is always slavery. It's always trying to master you. Sin is always trying to destroy and break and damage and it wants to be king. And before you have Christ, sin is king. You cannot help but obey sin as a master. Now, that seems obvious sometimes. 
You see people who are living in immorality. And people who, who uh, are living in open rebellion against what the Bible says and what God says is good. And in that immorality, you see clearly the sin and they have to live for it. You know, they say, I just want the pleasures life will give me and they can find nowhere else to get them. And so they live for that pleasure and it's what they want and it drives them. The only reason they might do something good like work at a productive place is so they can have the money and resources to buy their pleasures. It's what drives them. And here's the thing. Those pleasures always promise something great and then don't deliver quite what they promise. They get the pleasure but it goes away so quickly and it never satisfies and fully fills them up and so they need a little bit more. And this time when they get the same thing they had before, it's not enough, so they have to get bigger. And that's the nature of addictions and that's the nature of pleasure and that's the nature of immorality. One uh, Major League Baseball player, his team had just won the World Series. And when he got done, he, 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 his, his quote, is this it? even though he'd gotten to the very thing he'd been chasing all his life, had achieved it and accomplished his greatest goal, this was what I want in life. And he got there and said, is this it? David Powlison, a, uh, um, a counselor in Philadelphia, says that to live like that is like climbing a, a six-foot ladder in a 35-foot room. It, it, you don't get there. It doesn't work. You, you chase the pleasure, you chase what immorality promises, this freedom, and it doesn't happen. You always need more. It's always not enough. But we can be enslaved to sin in the moral and religious kind too. Now, I, I say this about every week because I think every week we need to think about this. What we can do with our morality and our religion is simply say, you know what, God? I'm trying to be good and I'm doing a fairly decent job so just let me be alone. I want to depend on myself. I want to trust myself. I want to earn this. And so I'll be good enough as a neighbor and I'll be religious enough to make you happy. I'll read my Bible and I will pray enough to make you happy. Let me tell you how you can know if you're doing morality and religion in, in, in that sort of sinful way, a self-righteous or uh, a self-trusting way. Here's how it looks. First thing, is it will usually be competitive. That is, I'll do some morality or some religious work and then I'll look around and see who's doing what. And if I see people who are uh, doing a little worse than me, you know, someplace I feel like I can compare favor to, favorably, I'll, I'll start to feel good about myself and, and, and develop a little pride and I'll look down on someone. Or, I'll look at people and I'll see at least the externals, because I can't read their heart, and I'll say, oh man, they're doing better than I am. And then I'll say, I'm supposed to be doing that, and I'll feel despair. And I have to keep that constant work of, of getting bigger and better, because I'm afraid this person who's below me might get better. So I have to keep working hard, and no matter what I do, it's never enough. That's the constant feeling of someone who's trying to be moral on their own, apart from God, someone who's trying to be righteous on their own, is not enough. I'm not doing enough. It's like uh, um, the slave driver. One of uh, Karen and my favorite scenes from the movies from uh, the, the Two Towers, from the Lord of the Rings series. And in it, uh, Aragorn and Gimli and uh, 
Legolas are chasing after the Orakai who kidnapped two hobbits. And they're going to track them down. They're not going to give up until they free their friends. But as fast as they run and as hard as they get out of love for their friends, these Orakai are running just as hard, unwilling to rest. The, the enemy is just driving on. And the elf, Legolas, says it this way. They run as if the whips, the very whips of their masters are behind them. They can't stop. It's never enough. If you are living for being moral enough or righteous enough, you'll always feel never enough. It's a master that drives you. It's a slave driver. And so, regardless of what kind of sin you have, whether it's immorality or a a version of self-righteousness, it's always not enough and it's always demanding more. And so it's always slavery. And Paul says, if you know that about sin, its essential quality is opposition to God. If you know that about sin, why would you stay in it? Why would you even want to stay in it? You're asking on a question, shouldn't we just continue in sin so that grace may abound? Your question should be, how does this grace free me from that destructive, deadly, powerful slavery that has ruled my life. I want a new king. And so he answers. Verse 3, here's some things you need to know. He says, not only do you not want to stay in sin, you don't have to. Here's why. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Here's what is being said. Now, I want you to follow me for a second. This is going to feel a little abstract at first. Paul is saying this. The Holy Spirit, through faith, has taken you and so tied you to Jesus Christ that there is a way in which It is true, it is really, really true of you that you died with Jesus. You are so connected to Christ that when He died on the cross, you died with Him. And the purpose of your dying with Him was that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In order to break the power of sin in your life, the only way for you to escape this slave master was for you to die. And so God connected you to Christ and you died with Him. But you didn't die just to be dead. You died so that you would be raised and you're out from under that king. You're out from under that ruler. You're no longer a slave to that master. You died to Him. You're alive to God. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with Him, with Jesus, in a death like His, now listen to this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. It is a certain thing. Paul is not concerned. He he, he intensely throws the word certainly in there to emphasize how absolute it is. If you, through faith, are tied to Christ in His death, you are tied to Him in His resurrection, you are following Him along as if you were in a a fast-moving stream and you couldn't get out. 
He is carrying you along His path because you're tied to Him and that tie can't be severed. It is certain you'll experience a resurrection like His. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Here's the idea. Your old man, the old man is the idea of your sinful nature, that the person you were outside of Christ, that old man was carried up to the cross with Jesus and there the wrath of God was poured out on that sin and that sinfulness and it settled. Your old man died that day. Your old man, this sinful nature is executed. It is dead. And you're free from its power. Now verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If you died to sin with Christ, if your old man was crucified, then you were really connected to His resurrection and you have real life, spiritual life, if death is the inability to obey God, life is this ability to obey God. It's real and it's in your veins. You're tied to Christ and you can't help it. We know, verse 9, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Remember, part of the reason why sin was so powerful was death ruled with sin. It ruled over you. It was this constant promise of punishment and of condemnation. But for you now, if you were to die in the body, you would wake up with the Lord in His favor. And so this idea of condemnation has been erased. It doesn't have power over you. Verse 10, For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And you are tied to that life. Right, this sounds very mystical and spiritual and there's, it's so abstract and, and it's hard for me to believe. Let me start with this. That may be the case. This spiritual reality is no less true. You guys remember the scene in, in uh, 2 Kings. Uh, Elisha is surrounded by the enemy and his servant goes outside and he sees the enemy army surrounding him and he is terrified by what he sees. Oh, Master, they've come. And Elisha says, Oh Lord, open his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, he sees not just the physical realm, but he sees the spiritual realm around him. And it says the the countryside is full of fiery angels and chariots with swords drawn. And you know what happens to good old Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. His fear is gone in an instant. You see, that spiritual realm that he could not see and he couldn't touch and he couldn't feel at least or perceive for the moment was real before he could see it. What I am describing to you, your union with Christ that you may not feel is real. And it should make some of your fears evaporate. But let me give it a little more concreteness. Uh, Tim Keller uses this illustration. A man... uh, who is 
intelligent and a hard worker is, is, sees a need and he invents a device that would help it and then he markets it and he works so hard to build uh, the, the factory that would put it together and he begins to sell it and he makes millions of dollars through long time hard work and effort and ingenuity. Everything about him, it's the American dream of someone who has merit and makes their living. And this man, after he has made his wealth, goes back home and meets his you know, middle school sweetheart from their small town, lower middle income type uh, family, and he uh, courts her and they get married. He worked hard and did everything he could to gain his wealth. She became wealthy because of her relationship to him. Jesus has accomplished this death and resurrection and He did it by His own hands but you are married to Him. And so you get it. You're wealthy because of your connection to Him. You're united to Him and it's yours. And so He's brought you out through His death and resurrection out from under sin. You see, before I had to say, God, I'm going to try to be religious enough and moral enough I'm going to work real hard to try to get it and I'm always insecure and I'm always doubting. Is it enough yet? Now you have Jesus and He says it is finished. It's enough. And so you no longer have to slave under these rules of religion and morality to try to say, am I satisfying to God? You don't have to do that because you're already satisfying to Him. And so what you might offer Him in morality or in religion is just that, an offering of worship. You're worthy of this. I'm not doing it to get anything. I already have it. And similarly, if I have longed for rebellion against God, it's because I was angry at Him. But you see, this God has come to make an end to your rebellion by loving you into His favor. And so He robs you of everything you could have to be angry about Him. Of everything you could say, but I want to live this way for rebellion's sake. Why rebel against this God who is for you? You see, it takes the power out of that sin that used to control you. It can't control you anymore. And so, you don't want to sin. You don't have to sin. So don't sin. Don't continue in sin. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, or alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider here means to think on. You should think, I'm dead to this sin. It doesn't rule me anymore. You should meditate on that. You should chew on that. Make it part of your thinking. Count yourself, consider yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. Those are the old translations. Think about how you're dead to sin. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't let it rule you. Here's the image. Imagine an evil king who rules over a society and he, he gives out evil decrees and he's a tyrant and you have no choice but to obey him or die. And so you, you do what he says, but you hate it. And finally, the rebellion comes and overthrows him. But they decide, instead of executing a king, as would be the normal course, that the proper punishment would be to force him to live among the community. To live among those that he ruled over with such evil. To know that he will get his that way. 
and, and it would be more just. And so he's forced to live the life of a commoner. But he's forgotten he's a commoner. And so he sits and he tells you, now your peer, where to go and what to do. And he continues to command you like a king. You would look at him and say, you're not king anymore. I'm not going to obey you anymore. But to let sin reign in your bodies. To present your, your bodies as an instrument of sin is to go back to the old king who's not on the throne and to say, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. Let me offer a couple of ideas here. A couple of pastoral things. First, this really sounds triumphant. This sounds great. I'm going to go tomorrow and I'm not going to sin. I'm going to count myself dead to sin. I'm not going to struggle with sin tomorrow. Well, here's the problem. Two things. One, the sin that's been a part of your life, that old man that's been crucified... He's dead, but he's not gone. He's still someone you drag around as though it were a dead body chained to yours. And so it has this influence, and he's taught you some bad habits. You know, the way an addict can't get out from under his drug overnight. You won't get out from under your sin overnight. And the longer a person's been an addict, the harder it is, the longer it takes for them to get out from under their addiction You've been an addict to sin for a long time. And it's affected you. It's affected your mind. It's affected your will. It's affected your emotions. You're dead to it. You're going to start getting out from under it, but it's going to take a while. And and, and the second thing that I want you to see is that sometimes we preach miles, but we move inches. Right? Let Let me put this in a way that's going to be real concrete. Tomorrow, this will appeal more to guys than to women, I think. But hopefully you'll all see it. Tomorrow, at your job, you do something where you fail. And it's a big public failure. And the first thing that happens is you begin to feel inside, I am a failure. And there's a sense of, of I needed this to work and I'm crushed because it didn't happen. And then there's a a person who sees your failure and begins to make fun of it and you feel shame that that begins to cover you. And and then there's someone that you know who's critical of you over your failure. Either they're critical to you or to someone else. Either way, you fear what's going to happen because of it. Okay, That's the setting. Here's what this passage means. Tomorrow... You fail at your job. And your old self says, I need to be at success to mean something. That success is what makes me valuable and significant as a person. Christ says, count yourself dead to that. For your significance is in your connection to me. You died to the need for success because you belong to me and I've succeeded for you. You're dead to that. Count yourself dead to needing success and be free. And the person who makes fun of you for your failure and and makes public sport of you and dishonors you, you say, but I need that honor. It's how I know that I'm, I'm doing okay. And the Gospel says, no, the honor is from the smile of your Father as it's on you. The king 
of heaven and earth who knows your work and knows your life says, I am for you and I'm not ashamed of you. And so you take that dishonor and you say, I didn't need honor from him. I needed it from my king and I got it. And you hear the disapproval of the critic. And before when that would crush you, the old man said, but I have to have people like me. Now you say, but my father likes me. The Lord Jesus died for me and I'm connected to Him and I will have His favor forever. I'm looking through that portal into the judgment day and I hear Him say, well done. And it's louder than the critic's voice. And you see how counting myself dead to needing to be a success, of needing the honor of men, of needing the approval of men, takes root. Now, here's what that will really look like tomorrow. That's the miles. Here's what it will look like. Maybe you begin to say to that success, I'm going to fight it. I still want it. I want it so badly that I can taste it. But I'm going to try to fight it a little bit. And maybe, maybe for five minutes, I can hold off those crushing thoughts. Maybe for ten. Maybe in two years, it will move from ten to an hour. Maybe I can hear the joke and I can start laughing with it. And, and at lunchtime, I'll weep. And I'll say, God, I, I thought I could get rid of honor, but I only did it for a little while. And God says, well, then we'll try again tomorrow. You're connected to Christ, and you're risen to me, and we'll keep walking together until we get it. You see, you are dead to sin. And you're not the same person you used to be. Your old man is dead. And you're under grace, and it's a better king. Uh, St. Augustine was uh, one of the finest theologians in the history of the church. Hugely important. But before his conversion, he was uh, very immoral. A known womanizer would have been a person who came to the, to the Scriptures and to the Gospel with a very darkened and ugly and guilty conscience. And one day after his conversion, he was back in Milan, his hometown, and he saw in the distance one of his old affairs. And he was trying to avoid her, but she saw him. And she remembered their good relationship, and so she came to entice him. And she said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. Augustine, who couldn't avoid her now, looked at her and said, yes, but it is not I. I'm not the same one I was before. The old man that couldn't say no is dead. Before I had to have pleasure, now I have the pleasure of my Father. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, grant us this faith that says Christ is enough and we're dead to sin and He's a new Master and He's better, better than the old slavery that we used to live in. Help us to not want to sin. Help us to believe and consider that we're dead to sin and then to put into practice. And may that practice grow and grow and grow to your glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your hymnals and turn to 529, we're going to sing Love Divine.